our text this morning. Now, as we turn to hear from the living God and his word is from Hebrews chapter nine, verses one to ten. Sam read the text a few minutes ago. I trust if you can, you'll keep your Bible open to that passage as we consider it now together. We've been in Hebrews as a church for already quite a long time. We've become accustomed to some more complicated and more involved study of certain Old Testament passages, but even I'm not sure how a passage like the one read this morning strikes you when you first hear it. But I can guess at least partly, I think, your reaction. You may be asking yourself, what does the layout of the tabernacle in ancient Israel and the ritual duties of the priests who served within it have to do with my life in the year 2020? Verse 1 of Hebrews 9 establishes the focus of the passage. The pastor writing Hebrews says in verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And then what we get in verses 2 to 7 is the pastor's summary of what that earthly place of holiness entailed. He focuses on the structure of the tabernacle in verses 2 to 5, and then on the worship that took place within it in verses 6 to 7. So maybe the question you have this morning is, how does thinking about lampstands and curtains and incense altars and divisions between holy places and most holy places and the work of the priests and of the high priest, all of which was regulated within the first or the old covenant, how can all of that possibly matter to how I think about or live my life in the year 2020? And my answer to that is that it matters for our lives for the same reason the pastor writing Hebrews thought it mattered for his hearers' lives. And that reason is what he tells them in verse 8. Verses 1 through 7 of our passage are all there to set up what the pastor wants us to see. It's when we get to verse 8 that we see it. Look now at Hebrews 9, verse 8. By this, the pastor says, meaning by everything we understand was the case in the Old Covenant, regarding the earthly place of holiness called the tabernacle, and the worship that happened therein by that whole system carried out, brought to mind now through the details I've just mentioned in verses 2 to 7, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Now, it'll take a while to unpack that verse. 
and we'll have to go back into verses 2 to 7 in order to do it. But right up front, let me focus on the basic point here, which, as I understand it, is this, according to the pastor, that God himself, the Holy Spirit, God himself, means for us to understand something when we consider all the details of the tabernacle's structure and the priestly activity that took place within it. And I think what God means for us to understand is something he was indicating all along to his people. In other words, I think what the pastor is pointing out here is what the tabernacle itself and the regulations for worship within it were always meant to communicate. That the Lord wants to be with his people. That in the end, what God wants is what he's promised his people he will bring about from the beginning to be with them as their God. And for them to be with him as his people. That is what the presence of the tabernacle itself was always meant to communicate. Even while, as we'll see, it also indicated that the fullness of that promise had yet to be realized. In Exodus chapter 29 in the Old Testament, after the majority of the instructions had been given to Moses regarding the construction of the tabernacle and the consecration of the priests, the Lord says, this is Exodus 29 verse 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Why? What's this all about? What's all of this pointing towards ultimately? Exodus 29 verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That's what the tabernacle was always meant to signify. That one day the everlasting promise made to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring would be realized. I will dwell among them and be their God. Only we've said it enough times in our study of Hebrews already. When that key promise is finally and fully to be realized, where will we be? Well, in the faithful words of David from Psalm 23, verse 6, we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That means we'll be in the holy places, you see. Which means we'll be where Jesus, our high priest, has already gone. That's the point. Do you remember chapter 8, verse 2, from a few weeks ago? 
If you have your Bibles there, look back at the beginning of chapter 8, starting now in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this, the pastor writes, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Do you see, in chapter 9, verse 8, our text this morning, the holy places, note the plural there, not holy place, but the holy places, the way into which the Spirit of God indicates is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. These are the same heavenly holy places the pastor was describing at the beginning of chapter 8, because in the end, that's what this was always about. The fact that we'll be in the true tent one day, the true dwelling place of the Lord, that's always been the point of the tabernacle. We saw this also in the early part of chapter 8. The tabernacle Moses was to build, was to point forward to the place where God will dwell with his people forever. Remember chapter 8, verse 5? The pastor said, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And it was brief. But we made the point then that that did not mean that God showed Moses some larger-than-life replica model that he was then supposed to copy in miniature form. It wasn't to be a copy of what Moses saw. It was to be according to the pattern Moses saw. I think Moses saw the real thing, brothers and sisters. And he was instructed to build a tent, a tabernacle, that would indicate to the people of God through its structure, through its worship, what the promise was and how it would one day be fully realized. Because for all the glory and the magnificence of the tabernacle and then the temple that came after it and was modeled on it, for all that it communicated concerning the fact that the Lord would one day dwell with his people, the whole point of the tabernacle and the point the pastor is making in our passage this morning is that the structure and the operation of the tabernacle itself revealed that God's great promise had yet to be fulfilled. That's what verse 8 is saying. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, the way into the very dwelling place of God, where Jesus now sits, the holy places where we will dwell forever, life with God in a place. The place the Bible calls ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, the point is that the way there is not yet opened as long as the first section 
is still standing. So, with verse 8 in view, though there's a little more still to say about it, here's what I'll try to do with the rest of the sermon time this morning. There'll be two parts to it. In the first part, we'll look back at verses 2 to 7 to answer the question, how does the tabernacle itself indicate what verse 8 says it does? That the way into the holy places is not yet opened. In other words, what was it about the structure of the worship within the tabernacle that verse 1 calls the earthly place of holiness? What was it about that that makes it clear that the way into the heavenly holy places wasn't yet opened? That's the first part of the rest of the sermon. And then in the second part of the rest of the sermon, we'll look ahead to verses 9 and 10, and maybe also briefly to verses 11 to 14, to answer the question, then what is it that yet needed to happen? If the issue is that the way into the heavenly holy places wasn't yet opened, then what opened it? You see... And what does that mean for our lives? What does it mean for our lives that it has been opened? That's where we want to end up this morning. So we begin in verses 2 to 7, focusing on the earthly place of holiness. Verse 1 set the context. We read it before. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. You know now why the pastor specifies that he's talking about the earthly place of holiness. It's because it's distinct from the heavenly holy places, as we've already seen. So let's read again now verses 2 to 5, which are all about the arrangement of this earthly place of holiness, the tabernacle. Verse 2, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, the pastor says, we cannot now speak in detail. It seems to me that the point of verses 2 through 5 has to do with the structure of the tabernacle. The pastor realizes there's lots that could be said about the furniture inside it. He doesn't go there. It's very tempting to try to do what the pastor isn't doing and say all kinds of things about those items in the tabernacle. But we shouldn't do that, not right now. You can read about many of them in the instructions that were given to Moses in Exodus chapters 25 and following. The chapters concerning the tabernacle construction. Any good study Bible will take you through all of that if you want to consider those things in the relevant Old Testament passages. What we need to stay focused on is the big idea here. 
which is that the tabernacle itself was divided into two parts. The first part is called the holy place, and the second part is called the most holy place. And although Hebrews only alludes to it by calling the curtain between the holy and the most holy place the second curtain in verse 3, you may know from your reading of Exodus and other passages that the tabernacle itself set, was set within a larger courtyard area. The tabernacle was, of course, always to be situated in the heart of the people as they journeyed, with the tribes camped around it in a designated formation. Instructions regarding how to build it were given to Moses when the Lord spoke to him on Sinai, where we read that the court of the tabernacle was lined with white linen walls forming an enclosure 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. And when a worshiper would enter the courtyard of the tabernacle, he would be immediately in front of the altar of burnt offering. This was a large bronze altar with the horn at each of its four corners to which offerings could be tied. And that was as far as the layman could go. Behind the altar stood the bronze laver, that is a wash basin for the priests. And from there, only priests could go any further. The tabernacle itself was directly behind that wash basin. The tabernacle itself was a flat-roofed tent 15 feet high and 45 feet long. And now just to give you some sense pictorially of what we're talking about here, I'm, I'm asking Stephen, if we can pull this off, to screen share for you an image. Is it on there? This image is an artist's rendering of what the tabernacle itself set within the larger courtyard looked like. This is taken from the ESV study Bible. And the point is not in all the details. You probably can't even read all the little words that are there on the screen. That's not the issue at the moment. The point isn't in all the details so much as it is in the overall structure. I want you to have some idea what this looked like. The tabernacle was covered with three layers. The first was of woven tapestries of blue and purple and scarlet, yarns and linens, which was then overlaid with two layers of animal skins. But inside, the tabernacle was divided, as you can see on, on your screen, I hope, into two rooms. And it was divided by an ornate veil, or the curtain, as our text calls it. That veil or curtain was woven of the same colors, along with gold and embroidered with cherubim, and it went floor to ceiling, supported by four golden columns set on silver bases. And inside that tabernacle then, that first room you would come to, the outer room, was called the holy place. The second inner compartment behind the curtain was the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And you can see there that in the first section, in the holy place, it had within it the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. You can read about those things in Exodus 25. 
Now, according to Exodus chapter 30, the holy place also was where you would find the golden altar of incense. And it's pictured there, immediately in front of the veil that separated the outer room from the inner sanctum. It's a bit confusing and not entirely clear why the pastor writing Hebrews seems to say the incense altar was in the most holy place. You see that in verse 3, where the pastor moves to the most holy place, he says, having the golden altar of incense in verse 4. But that altar of incense wasn't in the most holy place. Most scholars I've read seem to think that the pastor mentions that altar in connection with the most holy place because it was placed immediately in front of it. And because of the role that the cloud of incense from the altar had to play in covering the high priest when he approached and passed through the curtain into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Be that as it may, verse 6 of our passage is where we read about the work that the priests did in the holy place, in the first room. These preparations having thus been made, the pastor writes, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. The priests who served in the holy place tended to the seven lamps, morning and evening. They would also at those times stoke the coals on the altar of incense upon which they could drop additional handfuls of incense to fill the holy place with the, the smell of the incense and the cloud. Weekly, they would exchange the bread on the table with fresh loaves. All of that was done in the holy place. And you may in fact recall that this is what Zechariah was doing in Luke chapter one, right? Whose song we recited earlier in our service. Of course, it was in the temple at that time. And in New Testament times, priests were chosen by lot for one week to serve in the temple. You may recall how the angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah standing on the right side of the altar of incense. All of this was still clearly in view in Jesus's own day. But the point the pastor makes in these verses has to do with the difference between the holy place and the most holy place. And the key distinction is this. The priests served in God's presence in a limited way through the symbolic items in the holy place, but God himself dwelt, so to speak, in the most holy place, the holy of holies, that's what the most holy place was all about. It was a cube in shape, 15 feet on each side. And the pastor tells us about it in verse 4, where he lists the items inside the most holy place. The main focus, of course, is on the Ark of the Covenant. But the pastor also mentions the urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff which budded, the tablets of the covenant, Again, it's tempting to say lots about those things, but we won't. It's the ark that's the center of attention here. And as verse 5 describes, on top of the ark were two golden cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. They were the cherubim of glory, as verse 5 puts it. 
Why? Because it was between them that the glory of the divine presence dwelt among God's people. And the whole point is that no one could go in there. Now, Stephen, we don't need to keep the picture up any longer as we move ahead through the sermon. Every day, priests would come into the outer room to perform their ritual duties, but, verse 7 says, into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. The ark in the Holy of Holies was the earthly throne of God. It was the place where the high priest came annually on the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16, where he came to sprinkle sacrificial blood before the mercy seat in atonement for sin. And he did it one day a year only because the whole point is you can't go in there. The second curtain that was the divide between the holy and the most holy place was the symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful humanity. They cannot dwell together. That's the point. I like what one author says, the tabernacle thus expressed the union of two apparently conflicting truths. God called man to come and worship and serve him, and yet he might not come too near. The veil kept him at a distance. The Holy One bids Israel build him a house in which he will dwell, but forbids them entering his presence there. So that, you see, even that one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, that wasn't the answer to this tension. Precisely the opposite. Far from minimizing the separation between the holy God and his unholy people, that one day, repeated every year, emphasized it all the more. It was the exception that proved the rule. The Day of Atonement proclaimed that the way was in fact barred on any regular basis. It was simply not possible to approach the Lord, the barrier was impenetrable, which brings us back to verse 8 and to the hinge between the first and now the last part of this sermon. Because even as, all, even as that was all true, the Day of Atonement did also point forward to a day when there would be a way of fully opening this access. That's what verse 8 is saying. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The whole point of the tabernacle system of worship was on the one hand to show God's intent to have fellowship with his people, while on the other hand showing that the way for this to happen was not yet open. 
And so we turn our attention to verses 9 and 10 as we begin to think about the way into the heavenly holy places. And immediately in verse 9a, the beginning of verse 9, we find the tremendously important clue as to how the pastor wants us to relate to the tabernacle and the old covenant under which it was imposed. Verse 8 said the way into the heavenly holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And then the ESV has in the first part of verse 9 a parenthesis that completes the sentence from verse 8. You see it there. It says in parentheses, which is symbolic for the present age. Meaning the, the outer part of the tabernacle, the first section, the holy place, as separate from the most holy place. That is symbolic of, or literally the word that's used here means it is a parable for the present age. In other words, the ritual of the tent, the way it stands between the worshiper and God's presence are what characterize the present age. So that now we have to ask what age or time is in view here? The pastor calls it the present age, but you may have a footnote in your Bible, as I do in my ESV version here, that provides another way to read it. And the footnote in my ESV that, that I have at the bottom of the page after following that parenthesis says, you could translate it, which is symbolic for the age then present. Do you, do you hear the difference there? What present time is in view here? I think the footnote is the right way to read it. And I think if you keep reading, you'll hear how it makes sense. Because what we find out is that the times were changing. Verse 9 continues, According to this arrangement, that is the arrangement of the tabernacle, its worship practices, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The word that's translated time at the end of verse 10 is the same word that's translated age in the parenthesis in the beginning of verse 9, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why the ESV translates them differently because I think to do that completely confuses the point, which is this, that in verse 9a, the pastor's saying the outer tent with its furnishings and its ministry that separated the people from the most holy place and the presence of God was symbolic of that present time. Then he says in verses 9b and 10, that all the gifts and sacrifices that are part of the system that included the tabernacle are only imposed until the time of reformation, the time of setting straight, the time of the new order. Here's the question, when does that transition happen? 
When does the present time in verse 9 give way to the time of reformation in verse 10? Well, here's the clue. Verse 1 says all this about the tabernacle has to do with the first covenant. We just spent two weeks talking about the old versus the new covenant. What was it that signals the new covenant has come? The answer, of course, is what will take us into verses 11 to 14 next week. It's the coming of Christ. This is what Hebrews is all about. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. You see it right there at the start of verse 11, the text for next week. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places. It's already happened. Christ himself has now replaced the high priest and the temple and the blood of the animals and the food and the drink rituals. That's where we were in chapter 8, verse 13 at the end of last week, remember? In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so it has, brothers and sisters. The pastor sees himself here in the time of transition from the old to the new. And the point is that the new order, the reformation spoken of at the end of verse 10, has been inaugurated in Christ. And that means, dear friends, that the way into the holy places is opened. The revelation has come. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, by his own blood, the blood of the new covenant. Jesus Christ did what had not yet been done under the old covenant. In him, the way into the most holy place is eternally opened. Through faith, we enter into direct fellowship with God that will last for all eternity. The Gospels tell us that on the day Jesus Christ died, the curtain that barred the way into the holy places was torn in two. Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 says that at the very moment Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The point isn't subtle. There's no holy place separate from the most holy place. Not in the new covenant. Praise the Lord. There is only the most holy place. And it's heaven itself. That's where you and I will be. And the whole earth will be full of his glory. God's desire to call us into communion with himself has been brought to fruition by the precious blood of Christ, about which we'll have much more to say in verses 11 to 14 next week. But as we come to the end of our time this morning, let me draw your attention to what in the end this means for our lives. Back in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, the pastor said, Jesus Christ holds his priesthood permanently. 
because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Do you hear how different that is from the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies once a year? None could draw near to God through him, but through our great high priest. That's precisely what we must do. Which means the good news has to be that because of what Jesus has done, that is what we can do. The repetitious rituals of the earthly holy place demonstrate clearly that the way of access into heaven itself was neither open nor disclosed under the old covenant. But why was such access unavailable? Why the symbol of the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place? Well, the answer is there in the second half of verse 9. It was because according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Dear friends, that's what has to happen if we're to draw near to the Lord. We've come full circle now back to our opening question. At the start of our time this morning, I asked how all of this discussion about tabernacles and priests and curtains barring the way to the most holy place can possibly matter to how I think about or live my life in the year 2020. Here's the answer. It's because that old covenant system revealed what was then and is still now required to draw near to God. We have to be cleansed from an evil conscience. The conscience minimally describes an awareness of sin before God. But it's more than just awareness. As one scholar puts it, the conscience is directed toward God and embraces the whole person in his or her relation to God. It is the worshiper's inner being or true self. It is the heart. And as we've seen over the last two weeks, it's the heart that has always needed to change. That the deepest problem we have, the deepest problem we have in the modern world is the same as the deepest problem people have had in all times. Our conscience alienates us from the holy God, as it should, unless it has been cleansed. The essence of the human predicament is an evil heart of unbelief, not only burdened with guilt, but dominated by sin and rebellion. But this is the truth the scriptures proclaim, that those who have been forgiven and cleansed from sin so that they now live in faithful obedience to the Lord are able to enter God's heavenly presence and enjoy communion with the holy God forever. Hebrews 9 verses 1 to 10 tell us that the sacrifices of the old covenant could never give us that. But as we'll see next week, by his obedient sacrifice, Christ can purify our conscience from dead works. 
and write God's laws on our hearts that we may serve the living God. John chapter 14 tells of the conversation Jesus had with his disciples on the night of his arrest. He spoke to them about this departure, his departure to be with God, to go into heaven. Thomas responded in verse 15, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Only if Thomas had understood better, he might have comprehended the magnitude of what Jesus was saying. He might have grasped that Jesus was going to God, doing what the high priest only dimly prefigured one day a year, and in doing so, making a way for his disciples. How can we know the way? Thomas asked. Jesus replied in John 14, verse 6, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Such was God's intention from the first. I will be their God and they shall be my people. All to which the tabernacle pointed has now come. Jesus Christ is the true sacrifice, the true priest who would open the way past the veil into the dwelling of God himself. Therefore, the pastor will conclude in Hebrews 10 verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Hear it. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Thanks be to God. Amen.